Hey people, Mr. Money Jar here. Welcome to episode 8 of the Loose Change podcast. This week, Niaz, Shaq and myself talk about some of the inequalities faced by ethnic minorities fleeing the war in Ukraine. We talk about some of the proposed changes to the student loan repayment thresholds. And we also delve a bit deeper into the gender pay gap for International Women's Day. Thank you as always for tuning into this podcast. We appreciate you all and we hope you enjoy listening to this week's episode. Loose change, bitch. I got some loose change. I did uh, I did forget to start recording the video for today. <laughs> no, no problem. Thank but yeah, thank it's you just... for the reminder. <laughs> so yeah, the, the change to student loans, before we jump into what those changes are, don't you just think like whenever we get shafted by this government, we always think, oh, well, I guess it just can't get any worse. <laughs> but then, no, they always manage to pull something out of the bag, like, oh, it could get worse. But yeah, uh, so student loan changes, people probably saw a few months back that there were some discussions and they were speaking about changing the repayment threshold, so making that lower, so people would have to start paying money back at a lower salary. And there are a few figures being thrown about. And that was probably the government just trying to gauge sort of what the reaction would be to any changes. But now that they've completed their review, they have actually announced what these changes are going to be. So the first change is that repayment terms are going to be extended from 30 years to 40 years, which is ridiculous. Because as it stands, like if you haven't paid off after 30 years, it gets wiped, right? Whatever is outstanding. But now that's been extended to 40 years, which means that people will actually be paying back their student loan into their 60s, which is a bit bad. And then the threshold is also changing as well. So currently the threshold, you start making repayments is 27K, but that's dropping down to 25K. So yeah, paying back more, paying back for longer, paying back sooner. And, and the reason we're paying back more as well is because in the interest rates on those loans has also increased. So lucky is. It's actually criminal. I, uh, yeah, I hadn't actually even thought about the extension to 40 years um, because the original like um, mapping that they did and like all the commentary that they wrote is like, oh yeah, most people weren't paying back anyway. Um, and it's it's just constantly like retrospectively changing the terms of a loan that you've sold to adolescents basically who didn't really understand what they were signing up for and then you have the right to just retrospectively change it at, at will it's crazy yeah I, I should mention that the the extension to 40-year terms that's only coming into effect next year so just or students enrolling from september next year so 2023 to 24 students that will be imposed for them but for us we still have the 30 year terms yeah okay yeah. right yeah that's i guess a, a bit more palatable but still like um i think it changes as well i think the advice then should start becoming a bit more nuanced about people considering whether it's actually worth on balance like taking out these loans to get certain degrees um uh, and there should be much more serious consideration about whether it's worth going to university or whether you might want to like get a kickstart an early kickstart on your careers as well yeah yeah that that. was that was going to be my point which is I think that well certainly since I left uni 10 years ago the expectations around going to uni and the different paths the different routes to certain careers seems to have broadened like diversified which I think is very 
positive. I did some volunteering with Young Enterprise back in 2019, um, just before the pandemic, actually. And the amount of times, you know, apprenticeships were mentioned in that session was actually really encouraging. Um, but yeah, like when I think about when I applied to go to university, I felt in my head that if I didn't go to uni, my life would be over. Like I literally just wouldn't be able to do anything with my life. Um, and if uni is going to be this expensive, then yeah, I think other routes might need to be considered. Yeah, I think that's that's such a good point. And it was the same at my school, Timmy, as well. So my school didn't even sort of make out that not going to uni was an option. Yeah, It was kind of, look, everyone's going to uni. We're going to spend all this time talking about uni, thinking about what course we're doing, helping you write your personal statement. Is that what it's called? Yeah. And the focus in sixth form, even from lower sixth as well, the, the focus was just on, all right, let's how to get into uni, how to pick your uni. And then a handful of people from my school weren't planning on going to uni and they were just completely like chucked to the side. I just don't think they got any support at all on sort of the options that were available to them. But like you said to me, I think times are changing massively. And I think I mentioned this on a previous part as well, but a lot of companies now are starting apprenticeships. So rather than hiring grad, just graduates, they're now taking people on from school, getting those school leavers in and getting them integrated into the workforce a bit earlier. And sometimes they're offering degrees alongside that as well. So rather than just choosing one or the other, you do have that option of continuing education, continuing your education and also getting a jump start on your career as well. The thing that I'm, the, the way that I always approach, approach stuff like this, because there was also that story, wasn't there, about people who fail their their GCSE, was it English? and, and Yeah, uh, yeah. That they, um, they wouldn't be able to apply for student loans. They wouldn't be able to apply for student loans. I am not of that school of thought. Like, I, I, I think I can understand what they're trying to do with that, which is to, like, if people aren't academically minded, that they try and, like, they, they said they want to get rid of Mickey Mouse degrees, but I'm not of that school of thought. I think you provide more options for people so that people can succeed no matter which path they choose rather than cutting off paths to people mm. um I actually I posted a story it was Bola Sol who yeah. um did the uh <laughs> did, a, did a TikTok about it and it kind of exploded and I posted a story response to it which um I think it was a bit unclear to people at the time I said uh, something like if we did this for like driving tests and how many cars would there be on the road and essentially what I meant by that is like it, it's so weird how when you do exams as a child, it's like, if you don't pass this test now, 16 year old, then you just cut this, you know, this whole like avenue of your life is just cut off. But you just get a bit, you do like a driving test. And if you fail it, then you just pay and then you just take it again. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great analogy. And shout out to some of my best friends um and uh my cousin so my cousin's been joyriding with me since we were 16 <laughs> we're we're now pushing well we're both 28 so we're pushing 30 um and he he's yet to get his license because of a, a few failed tests a few failed tests um so yeah imagine he oh, well, Rahat, Rahat can't drive <laughs> yeah well he can drive but he just keeps failing his tests <laughs> um yeah yeah he's fuming about it so. <laughs> 
um, but he's literally been driving with me um, illicitly, I guess, um, since we were 16. Um, but yeah, that's a great analogy though, because we've also got some mates. Imagine like that's something that that's a bridge that they went across at some point, but they just haven't got around to it. And imagine being told that, no, nah, sorry, you can't, you failed before. Furthermore, if you knew that you were doing a theory or your practical test and that it was the only chance. So you're literally driving down the roads, doing your three point turns and like Eminem's eight mile is just playing in your head because you know this is the only chance you have to pass your test. Like that will increase the chances of you failing it, right? Yeah. It's just the stakes are so much higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Yeah. I if I if that if that applied to me, my first uh driving test was such a monumental failure. It's quite <laughs> honestly, it's so bad. So what my this is typical immigrant dad like well this is what my dad did to me right he was like if you're gonna drive like you should be able to drive anywhere <laughs> so he like he said that book a test wherever it's available in the country I was like but there's places I've never been to he goes that's where you're <laughs> <laughs> so so I remember my first test I took somewhere in middle England and I turned up I was like, oh my God. And uh, imagine me, I'm like, like becoming, well, in my head, I'm thinking I'm a young adult. Like, why is my dad telling me what to do? So like, he drove me up to this place and um, super country. Like, and I hadn't really like driven around like country parts. Like it was, it was, it was quite uh, like urban areas, but then we also had loads of like country lanes nearby. Um, so I didn't really know how to behave on the road on this test. And uh, I came up to a bend and there was like, there was a cyclist and many sheep and I was like and I, and I knew that on these a roads you obviously have to go quite quick so I was just like oh shit what do I do what do I do so something came over me. I was like just just try to overtake this cyclist on a bend yeah and, and as I go to do it the, the instructors are just like stop 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in my head I'm like oh yeah I failed I can't believe your dad was adding like an extra barrier to you passing because people actively try and choose like easier test centers don't they yeah it's ridiculous although our closest test center which is Wanstead, is i think it's this it's the hardest to pass in in the country or something or definitely in london it has the highest fail rate in london um but yeah but the second time i actually did the test uh so i passed the second time i actually did it somewhere else that i'd never driven before and and managed to pass in the end but Plenty That's of so rogue. Yeah. I've just never heard of anyone doing that before. Yeah, so. So, I um, so I did my first test in Coventry, and then apparently that was like notorious for being pretty bad because Coventry's got like a massive ring road around it, which has like yeah. loads of different roundabouts. So I um got a bit unstuck there. Got might have got a couple of majors still, <laughs> <laughs> but then for my next one, I I had a a new um a new instructor. And she was like, definitely do not take it in commentary. Like, let's go and do it in Nuneaton, which is this little town uh, nearby, which is much easier. Timmy, can you drive, by the way? Can I drive? That is a great question. Um, I just I can... wanted to check before I started sending for people that can't drive. That are <laughs> I've, I've passed my test. Oh, oh yeah. that's, that's enough then. <laughs> I've passed my test. I, uh, I've driven 2.5 times. It ever as in two and a half trips just two point yeah so two complete trips and then the third time was like i pulled out of a parking space did two points of a three-point turn and then just gave up 
<laughs> and then what just left your car there? <laughs> I just no, my 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 mum. It was my mum's car. She took over because um, it'd been such a gap. Because like it's you know it's, you live in live in like central London. Um, they firstly it's like made prohibitively difficult to drive with congestion charge and ULEs and all of that. But then you have every other possible mode of transport available to you. But actually, one of my if I don't get round to it this year, then definitely next year I want to practice because I feel like. I feel, yeah, maybe feel like a bit of a liability now. Yeah, but at least you you pass. People yeah. always say, "Oh, you learn to drive after you pass your test." So yeah. you, you've done the hard bit, I guess. Yeah, I passed. I passed with eight minors. Oh, so, bloody hell! Yeah, maybe they shouldn't have passed you after all. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I was because I was just going to say it's. I do think it's a bit peak for when people for various reasons of course like when they're sort of in their late 20s early 30s especially in london they can't drive because it's kind of like when are you gonna learn because it's one of those things you want to just get it out of the way because say you're like our age now you're 27 28 and you don't or you haven't passed your test getting lessons in london is it's going to be expensive and also it's just very time consuming because even if you're learning from scratch you're going to need at least like 20 25 hours of learning aren't you so yeah bit of a nightmare um so rahat my cousin he was he was basically just saying at one point he's he's, he's gone back on his word uh, on this initial idea sorry he was like well i'll just wait until like automatic cars are a thing and self-driving cars so why would i need to we were like stop being so stupid and then now he's i think resorted to I'll just drive an automatic and pass an automatic with a crash course because he's, but he can drive. He's just like frustrated that he failed those two tests and then moved around a lot. Um, but yeah, I'm so happy I got it out of the way because yeah, yeah it, it just looms over you. But me and Shaq and I are like, well, apparently I don't agree, but um, terrible drivers anyway. We just happen to have, have the pink license, baby. <laughs> no. I, but you know what annoys me about that is when people that can't drive say that yeah, as well. Yeah, people that can't drive been in my car, like, oh, Shaq can't drive. I'm like, you don't know how gears work, so how can you comment <laughs> on my driving? You have the audacity. Yeah. Next time, I'm just going to have to kick them out. Yeah. <laughs> but, Timmy, I just wanted to go back to your point about the, the potential changes that will mean that certain people aren't allowed to go to university or they're not allowed to get funding, rather. So this was sort of announced around about the time that they announced the changes. And I think that it was a, another case of them testing the waters on a potential new policy. So that would be that people that don't pass English and maths A-level, I believe, or yep. potentially GCSE as well, wouldn't be eligible for student funding. And I'm with you. I just completely disagree with that as well, because your ability to get the, the grades at a-level GCSE they've got to be impacted by a number of things and I saw loads of people come out with stories on Twitter as well saying how they really struggled during GCSEs and A-levels because you know they had problems at home or they had mental health issues and they ended up going to university and doing very well and ended up getting good jobs from that so restricting what people's yeah options of being able to to do that I think would be a pretty terrible decision it wouldn't be one that I'd be surprised at from this government to be honest but i certainly think it's something they should try and steer clear of and i just think it kind of means that we lie to children because when a child is like really little you're like yeah you can do anything you can be anything and then they get to their teenagers and it's like 
You can be five things. Literally. So pick one. It's yeah, it's yeah, it's terrible. Um, it's funny because I think there's like a so Tony Blair when he was prime minister, I think he had um looked at uh, opportunities in education and he sort of like a success metric and factor that that he used was how many people can go to university and how many people ended up going to university. And his son famously is now um, trying to do the opposite and championing people getting apprenticeships and kickstarting their careers um, by alternative routes. Um, and it's so funny to, and the irony of seeing that change because actually the current um, status of the economy that we're in some of the best paying jobs you don't actually need a degree for. Um, and if you look at like uh, software engineers, software developers, um, uh, an example, actually, again, going back, going back to my cousin who we slated about not driving, um, he, he, he told me about this. Um, uh, taking the example of someone who studies computer science at university, um, they don't necessarily automatically have the ability to code many languages that are really useful in the economy today. So a lot of the time, by the time they graduate, some of the languages might become a bit outdated. Um, and the ones you, you constantly have to be in a mode of learning, right? Obviously, you learn the fundamentals and the basics. Whereas if you um, if you like take um, kids who don't want to go to university, but then suddenly maybe like you put them into a business where they learn the application of certain um, uh, uh, coding languages um, and they begin applying that early. And obviously, um, when you whenever you apply something in a practical setting um you tend to learn a lot quicker and a lot more effectively and you can build stuff a lot quicker um they quickly become embedded into those businesses and they're helping to like build whole solutions um so in this current economy where um coders software developers are like it, they're so like integral to our um uh, our current system our, like loads of technologies and our current economy um those people don't necessarily need to go to university and many of them don't um and they could quite easily end up with some of the best paying jobs um, with plenty of job security um, for many, many years to come. Um, so this idea of university is everything isn't necessarily um, a truth going forwards either. However, just to keep the um, conversation balanced, uh, I think it's very important to think about the, the kind of like the secondary advantages of things, or maybe like the additional advantages of things. So what is the purpose of uni? going to get a degree maybe yes but it also serves a function of allowing children to fly the nest get their independence um mix with other people from different backgrounds different parts of the country so we must also consider that if less people went to uni would we maybe lose some of that and as some of the most interesting conversations I ever had and like just the way that my mind was open to different schools of thought and stuff happened when I was at uni because it wasn't just the same circle of people as me from South London. I don't know what you guys think about that. I agree. I agree entirely. I, I have examples of people that I met at university who and and people's parents actually as well that went to university and they were like they would tell me in, in a very like open and nice way they'd be like I'd never seen a black person until I went to uni because I'm from here in like north north of in the north of england or like yeah. north of wales um and uh, or i'd never seen someone that wasn't white or spent time with someone that wasn't white until i went to university and then some of my best friends um are now um uh, of different races to me but in a way that isn't like 
silly, but it's just like I, I was never exposed to it. And now I learned so much about like the human existence. So that element of it, and I understand that. And I also completely agree because I look at my university experience and I think it was so full um, and well-rounded, but not because of me sitting down as an 18 year old and trying to study contract law very poorly. Um, it was actually because of um, like some of the enterprising skills that I gained at university and the, and the networks that I made and the friendships that I made. Um, and those are the things that have like endured to today. And um, even financially, um, uh, I think some of the greatest benefits that came to me from university are the things that I learned outside of academic study. So yeah, I, I agree. That example that you gave me as that actually happened to me. So in maybe the first like couple of weeks, there was like this, this Welsh guy in our halls and he was from sort of like the valleys in, in Wales. And he just said to me, oh, you know, I'd never actually seen a black person before. And I was like, wow, really? He was like, yeah, obviously I'd seen one like TV and stuff, but, you know, never in the flesh. I was just like, cool, man. <laughs> what am I supposed to say to that? Yeah, yeah mad. It is yeah. mad, isn't it? Because it's I've had a similar, I've had a similar experience. Even now, I know that there are people who aren't black that I'm friends with that I am their only black friend, and it always blows my mind because I'm like, I have so many black friends, like I know so many black people, but to yeah. you, I am like the one black person that you consistently see, that you consistently know, and then it makes me wonder, like, like don't do anything too weird. Because you're like higher <laughs> <laughs> representation. Yeah. <laughs> just, just like, just keep it normal. Because yeah, yeah. It must it must be a pretty strange experience for them as well. It's <laughs> like, wow. I thought I thought you were just like imaginary. <laughs> the the last thing I wanted to say on the the student loan changes. So when I was sort of reading into this, the article I was reading had like a so who were the winners and losers, and like. No points for guessing, but who got? Who would you imagine? Who do you reckon the winners are in this scenario? Rich kids, baby. Yeah, rich kids, and anyone else? Timmy. The government. Yes. So it's like, in short, the treasury. The treasury is going to be getting like hundreds of millions more extra from these changes, and then also high earners will end up paying less over the course of their repayment plan. And then it's implicit from that that the losers of these changes are going to be low to middle earners. So low to middle earners, in some cases, are going to be paying double what they would have been under the, the current plan. But again, can anyone really be that surprised with this government? Nope. Terrible. Um, one, one last point to, to sort of like round that all up is uh, people often ask, um, Student loan, the term student loan is quite misleading um, because the way the student loan works, it operates kind of as a tax um, on your income, um, which in, in the UK, so we don't have a system like uh, the US where no matter what you have, you, you have this like burden on you that you must pay off by X amount of time. Um, but the way it works for us is it, it's, it's basically levied like a tax. So um, the more you earn, the more you pay back. Um, but it does have like a, a ridiculous interest rate on it. So it, what it means is that um, for many people, they don't actually start paying off the principal loan until they're earning around 
fifty thousand pounds, I think. Um, for, well, so, we're we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do some content on this, aren't we? Spoiler yes. alert. Yes, exactly. So yeah. yeah, let's signpost that one. But yeah, I think I think an important important point uh, to consider is that consider the loan more of a tax. The more you earn, the more you start to pay back. Um, and there are different scenarios um, where you might consider paying it back earlier, uh, but for, for the most part, it might be worth just remembering that it's a tax that is going to be deducted from your from your income. But as, as Timmy said, we've, we've got a post coming out on it, which um, we'll be releasing, which will go into the numbers. Should cover all bases. And actually, one of the things I did a few years ago was the opposite of try and pay it back more quickly. I contacted SLC repayments on Twitter and, and got the rebate. Yeah, yeah, I remember you saying. Yeah. Why are you giggling, Shaq? Is it because you're remembering when you tried to get the refund? Yeah, but I think we already spoke. I think we spoke about that on a previous pod, but yeah, it's just like I was hoping hearing when you're hearing all your mates getting these numbers, like, wow, I just got like 300 pounds back, 500 pounds. This all comes in like, oh, 900 pounds. And I call up, they're like, no, you're not heard. (laughs) (laughs) You're not heard anything. Damn. Damn, son. I remember yeah, that was me as well. I thought I was going to get it back, but <laughs> well, you say you say that, but you just got a tax rebate, I swear. Yes, I did. Yes, <laughs> I had the letter. Yeah, the letter on my desk because it came through, and I was like, "Oh shit, I'm, I need to pay the I need to pay the tax man some more." Opened it up, and they were like, "You've overpaid. <laughs> we need to give you a refund," um, which was a very nice letter to receive from the tax man. I don't know if you've ever had the same to me. Yeah, I've gotten a rebate. Best piece of mail ever you just tear off the check at the bottom yeah yes i had one rebate when i first started working properly because i got a bonus like a joining bonus for my first graduate job and hmrc thought that that was going to be my salary for the whole time they thought that was going to be earning like god knows how much it would have been but um got a rebate then but since then haven't had a rebate so that's what six years but I have over, sorry, underpaid twice, which is pretty annoying because you get that letter oh. through like, oh, am I about to get a rebate? And it's, no, we've calculated that you've underpaid. Um, so your monthly payment's going to have to go up. And I've got a friend actually who, he now works in the treasury, but he used to work at HMRC. So whenever it happened, I'd be messaging him like, this must be some kind of mistake. And he's like, yeah, well, you can like call up and, and find out what's going on. And I'd call up and they're just going through because... Yeah, I, in my head, I was like, the maths ain't maths in. But once I spoke to him, I was like, oh, that just kind of makes sense to be fair. <laughs> yeah. um, there's some interesting psychology around um, rebates, though, because it, it feels like it's extra money, but it's money that you would do the entire time. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like the sunk cost as well. It's like when, when something's spent, you just, it's, it's done, it's forgotten about. Um so it doesn't feel like you've spent it when you come back, like months later. You're like, oh, actually, that's money that I spent. So um, it feels like a free experience. Yeah, so I'm, I'm doing a course at the minute. So my work has this, uh, this benefit where you get something like £4,000 a year to spend on training. But if you don't spend on training, you don't get to like keep that money or anything. But I'm doing a course at the minute, and it's costing a fair bit, like two and a half just under 3k but i'm having to pay for it myself and luckily they're doing they're allowing me to do it in installments otherwise um, i would have been in a bit of trouble there but then when i get the money back from work it's going to feel like some sort of 
like a yeah. little bonus, even though I've, I've already had to pay it. Yeah. Yeah, for real. So um, the last, last podcast, we spoke about the situation in Ukraine and Russia, and obviously that's been ever-evolving and things have, have moved pretty fast and it's still a very tragic situation. But I think there's some aspects that we wanted to talk yeah. about today. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, to, to start by saying that um, wholeheartedly, like our support is with any any innocent person, any refugees that are fleeing conflict and war, like they deserve our support with open arms. So on one side, it's been beautiful and amazing to see uh, the global reaction of everyone opening their arms and, uh, well, most of the world uh, opening their arms and um, trying to take in as many refugees as possible, because these are people whose worlds have been uh, destroyed by something that they did not control. Uh, and they're literally fleeing for their lives. Um, and seeing like Poland, especially, and like other countries opening up, saying, yes, we'll take you in. Like in Germany, there's people like at the train stations with like signs say in in Ukrainian saying, come and live with me. I have a room for you. I love you. And it's just like, you just got to witness like a beautiful side of humanity. Then obviously with Britain, we had a lot of virtue signaling and actually <laughs> didn't, didn't actually want to take that many people in or made it quite difficult administratively to take these people in. Um, but then on the other side, uh, it also, I think, showed and exposed us to some of the more callous and um, ugly sides of humanity too. Um, and I, I remember writing something thinking it's, it's a massive shame because um, I think there was a real opportunity I, uh, here, I think, to reframe our perception of refugees uh, and those innocent people around the world uh, who flee their lands because of the devastating impacts of war, um, a war that they don't wage um, by any fabric of their own existence. Um, and it's something that they get dragged into because refugees are actually some of the most vulnerable people globally, right? Um, and uh, their, their worlds and their entire existence gets destroyed and they reach a position where jumping into water risking their lives is safer than staying on their land. Um, and there was a real opportunity here because we're, we're seeing in Western Europe um, this play out uh, and we're able to like witness uh, the plight of refugees. Because I think obviously over the last decade or so, um, our perception of refugees has been quite different. Um, and then you look into why, right? Um, and you look into some of the, the media narratives um, uh, around refugees, because suddenly there was a real conflict between the decade-long um, barrage uh, on refugees, who maybe over the last 10 years, most refugees came from places like Yemen, Syria, uh, maybe um, parts of Africa, um, Somalia, um, and traditionally, these uh, in these regions, um, the refugees, uh, also Afghanistan, um, these people weren't white. Um, and at the start, you think, wait, surely, like, surely not, like, surely this isn't something that's going to be picked on. And there was a real conflict with with the media narrative um, around these new refugees who were European, white. Uh, and I'm, I'm quoting um, white Christians with blonde hair and blue eyes 
who are distinctly different refugees from the ones that we've been seeing over the last decade, who are undeserving of famine and war um, because of their whiteness. And then you start to realize that actually, wait, um, this humanity that we're demonstrating uh, seems to be limited uh, or should be limited or conditional based on whiteness um, because we somehow have to find a way to uh, demonstrate that the experiences of these Ukrainian refugees are not exactly the same experiences as the innocent Syrians or the innocent Af Afghans, uh, the innocent Afghans or the the Yemenis um, uh, or the Somalis or or anyone around the world who is who is facing devastation because of a war that they had nothing to do with. These are innocent people. Like uh, I and I remember. So we have. Um, I remember when the conflict in Syria started um, many years ago. And we have some neighbors who, uh, who is a Syrian family, like an amazing like uh, family that we've known for many years who kind of grew up with us. Um, both doctors um, come from like a super uh, educated, highly skilled family and their family like back home was like devastated by the war as well. And this isn't for me to say, by the way, that um, you should look at how highly skilled people are to feel sorry for them because that's not the case either. A human life is a human life. And your humanity should extend to anyone that is suffering any devastation. But um, we have been, it has been portrayed to us that um, refugees around the world are in some way deserving of this conflict um, or the conflicts that they face. However, suddenly we've seen a conflict arrive uh, on the shores of Western Europe. And these people who like us drive the same cars as us, who have blonde hair and blue eyes, this shouldn't be happening here. This should be, this is something more akin to what happens in Iraq or, or Yemen or Afghanistan. And I'm saying this stuff, literally quoting some of the media, like, like some headline media narratives, um, which is trying to spin this into, um, yes, refugees are welcome. They deserve our support, but only if they're white, which is, which, which is the, the, the tragic tale of where we are. Um, and, and to sort of like round this initial bit up is to say that, we should support refugees and those in need wholeheartedly. And Ukraine and Ukrainians, they deserve all of the support that we're getting. And at the same time, we should be able to challenge the current media bias that we're seeing because we are intelligent, cognizant um, beings, especially now as young adults. Um, and the old media outlets are losing their power. And a lot of people, the way they source their information is actually through things like this and actually social media. Um, so we have an opportunity to challenge this media bias whilst also supporting the plight of Ukrainian citizens. I think that's really well said. Really powerful. And, and one of our, our friends just, I think they summarized it really well when they said, this is the level of compassion that should be the minimum for, for everyone, not just when people look like us being you know white british people uh, but it's i think it's really perpetuated by i guess you, you summarize it well by saying the media has but when you have government officials and you have celebrities talking about it in certain ways as well so recently there was a quote going around that had apparently come from from prince william where he said something along the lines of yeah we're used to seeing this in africa and asia but not in europe and I did kind of find it a bit unbelievable that he would say that. Not Well, not that I don't think he's capable of saying that, but I thought there'd be a bit more outrage if he had actually said that. Yeah. So I looked into what he'd actually said and what he said was this something like this type of conflict is very alien in Europe. 
so obviously it's implicit there that it's happening in other places so i don't think it's that's not as bad as what he what people were saying that he had said but i do still think that was quite bad given that there have been wars yeah. in europe you know over the last 100 years i'll be honest and, oh, sorry sorry Jack. Yeah, I, would, I was just going to say as well there was i've seen other things where they've spoken i saw a video where a a presenter i want to say it's that guy from the right stuff but it might be someone else but they basically said you know the type of bombs that are being used it, to be fair, it's been used in Iraq and Afghanistan, but to see it being used in, in Europe is stomach churning. And it's like, oh, it's it's only stomach churning because it's in Europe. And I also saw a, a Spanish, I think it was a Spanish uh, member of parliament saying how, look, let's clear this up. This is not the same as Muslim refugees because that's sort of like an invasion yeah. um, in, into our shores kind of thing. So when you're seeing all of these people making these statements and just unequivocally saying, this isn't the same as um, Asian refugees here because of X, Y, Z. I think it's ridiculous. And it really just, yeah. Yeah. It really just facilitates the the type of, of hatred we see towards certain types of refugees and the acceptance of towards others. But like we said, there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be criteria into allowing your compassion. That should just be for, for everyone. Yeah. And it just, it just shows you, um, so Akala, I know we're, we're all big fans of Akala. He he put it quite well. Um, and he said that um, why so many people are unable to express sympathy for Ukrainian civilians uh, without devaluing the lives of Afghans, Syrians and Palestinians is, is obscene. Um, and the fact that you're having to justify the conditions of your, of your sympathy by saying, oh, these people are undeserving of it as though other people are deserving of famine, plagues, war that they are, aren't in control of. Why can't you just say, look, these are human beings fleeing war and devastation. Let's open up the world to help them as much as possible. Unconditional on who they are. But obviously we know that's not the way the world works. And also you kind of, you're seeing people's true colors, which we always know and we accuse of, but we're seeing it um, openly in terms of certain politicians saying, yeah, of course it's different. Of course we trust Ukrainian um civilians more because they have blonde hair and blue eyes and they're Christian. It means they're more like us. And when it's, and you, I think it was like some politician in Spain was saying, this is different to those horrible um, Muslim refugees that are trying to come in. And we're like, these are the same people where they're seeing bombs in the sky, trying to run away from it. Like they're in the same position. They just happen to have a different pigmentation. Um, and your sympathy should also extend uh, to all of those people that are suffering. And it should not be conditional on how rich they are or how white they are. Um, and also this, there's also something being drummed up, uh, which Akala pointed out um, about, which I also take issue with, because first of all, it doesn't matter whether Ukrainians are rich or poor, we help them, we need to help them, they need our help, they need our support, they're fleeing war. But he, he pointed out that we're trying to suddenly uh, pretend that you, oh, sh- Well, sorry, my brother just snuck up on me and just. <laughs> I, I know, I know which part of the episode we're clipping for the gram. Oh my! That <laughs> just scared the shit out of me. Oh my god! Um, Did you just crawl up behind you? Yeah. What the hell? Did none of you? You didn't say anything. Um, uh, okay. So back to what I was saying. I was saying. Um, so Akala was basically saying how we're trying to suddenly um, paint Ukraine as this like really rich European nation. Um, Actually, like it, it, it doesn't matter. These people deserve our compassion and support. Uh, but Ukraine actually ranks um, 
in the mid 80s on the global democracy index, which is significantly lower than India, Jamaica, Ghana, Botswana, or South Africa. Um, he says, Ukraine is also a poorer country than Egypt, Jordan, Jamaica, Mauritius, Botswana, Iran, and many more third world nations, right? Uh, because remember, one of the conditions that everyone's saying um, that these people deserve our support, which I wholeheartedly disagree with, is the fact that uh, this is a civilized, that's the word that was used, this is a civilized nation with civilized people. Um, and then it actually also ranks 97th uh, on the Global Press Freedom Index, lower than Sierra Leone, Malawi, um, and um, many other um, uh, African nations, and a whopping 90 places behind Jamaica and 73 behind Namibia, right? Um, and then he finishes it by saying, none of this uh, is to say that you shouldn't have sympathy for civilians um, there, of course, but the utter contempt for whole regions where any number of nations are freer, more prosperous, and more democratic than Ukraine, um, it's actually been quite predictable uh, and really interesting. Um, because people are just like saying this stuff with such ease, trying to sort of like reshape facts uh, to find ways of trying to extend uh, whiteness as being superior. It's white supremacy in action, right? Um, and it's a shame to like even take the conversation here because as I re reiterate over and over again, no one fucking cares. There's people fleeing war, they deserve our support. And we don't need to put anyone else down when we talk about that. These people deserve our support. Um, but we also should recognize that there's people in conflict, right, who aren't white, which is why we don't hear about it and we don't give any of our sympathy for, um, who have been suffering. And a lot of these are civilian populations that have been in suffering the same or worse conditions uh, for 70 years or more. Um, one final example that I want to use, and, and when I say the 70 years one, is uh, the plight of the Palestinians um, who always have our heart. Um, uh, there and, and I think there's again there's another massive conflict with um, Western media because they hail these heroes. So I've got an example of Vogue. I don't know if any of you guys saw it. Um, yeah, with um, Gigi. Yeah. So they they had a bit of a mishap recently. Um, uh, so Vogue. Uh, I don't know if it was their Paris. Let's just say Vogue US or Vogue France. I think it was just Vogue generally. Vogue magazine, yeah, on their main on their main um, Instagram page. So Gigi Hadid, uh, who is global supermodel, and her sister Bella Hadid, they're like two of the most famous supermodels, two of the most successful supermodels in the world. Uh, so someone like Vogue, their business is very much centered around people like her. Um, she happens to be a Palestinian. Uh, uh, she she she's of Palestinian descent, right? Um, so again, already it's like for Vogue, you can see the internal conflict. We. We have to hate the Palestinians, though, but these two global icons are Palestinian themselves. But do you think they're suddenly going to turn on their own people? So Gigi, again, as with any refugees who understands crises that they've been in. Um, so Gigi and Bella are obviously of Muslim Palestinian descent who understand the plight of refugees because it's what they've experienced in their families. They've been displaced and Palestinians have been um, in conflict um, and um, being persecuted for over 70 years. And she put out a post basically saying on her own Instagram um, that she doesn't, it doesn't feel right that she's going to be making money um, uh, from um, fashion weeks at the moment on the runway um, whilst there's this conflict going on. So, and she, and, and while she has um, peers and colleagues that are Ukrainian and they're currently suffering from conflict. So what she, what she wants to do is to donate all of her earnings 
uh, to refugees around the world, including Ukrainians, Palestinians, uh, and others. Um, which is, of course, a very noble thing to do, and it's highlighting um, the plight of innocent people uh, and innocent refugees everywhere. So what Vogue did is they took that announcement that she's going to be donating this money, and they edited out Palestine uh, from uh, her post. They copied and pasted her um, uh, her post and put it on their own thing, and they literally just X'd out the fact that she said that she was supporting Ukraine and other refugees around the world, like Palestine. So, And they just X'd out any reference to anything that wasn't Ukraine, um, which is... Horrific. Did they just think that she wouldn't notice? Like it's just crazy, isn't it? So what people did, um, uh, and I remember when the when the post went up, um, there was a bit of a movement online. Uh, everyone just started commenting "Free Palestine" underneath the, the Vogue post, uh, and then they've now gone back and edited back the post to include her original comment saying that uh, she's supporting all innocent refugees um, that are being persecuted. Um, and, and, and factually donating her uh, earnings and winnings to Ukraine as they deserve all of our support, other refugees and, and those being persecuted around the world like Palestinians. Um, but it just, I think those are bold examples of people um, putting conditions on this humanity and sympathy for those that they think deserve it. And what it comes down to is, and it's, a hor- it's, it's terrible that it comes down to this and ultimately it just comes down to whiteness. Um, but to 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 think this the systemic hypocrisy exists. But to to be a bit solutions focused with all of this, what I would say is, us all of us we have a sphere of influence. Um, whether that's your families, and this is to everyone listening, whether that's your families, your friends, yourself. Actually, it starts with yourself. Um, is to understand, right, the reality of media bias, and recognize. Um, and recognize it for what it is and don't sit ignorantly um, and just be like, yes, this is true, but I'm witnessing something that just is callous and isn't right. So I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to follow that. Um, And things will change. And that's the only way that we can change the hearts and minds of people because we just have to be educated enough to understand where things are plainly wrong and where where we're trying to be uh, manipulated. the one thing I will say is where I, where I look quite hopefully is the power of these big media houses are diminishing. Their viewership is decreasing. They're, they're losing like um, their, their main demographics, which is sometimes why they become more violently racist anyways, is, is an older generation that they need, they know they need to keep and cater to. Um, but media, social media is new media and it's taking over, right? And it's democratizing media and people access information actually through social media um, and news is, is shifting, right? So there's an opportunity there for us to recognize traditional media bias, which I think for the most part, people have managed to do so. Um, but also just, just vocalize it and just be like, okay, that's bullshit. Like, um, I'm not going to subscribe to this narrative because I understand what the, what the real narrative is and I'm going to subscribe to that. Um, and that's the way that we can um, change things. So for me, as I said, there isn't a position to take on this. We wholeheartedly, with, with no condition, support the plight of innocent people in conflict that are being devastated by things beyond their control. Uh, and that has no condition on it, whether they're white, brown, Muslim, Christian, whether they look like me or not, these are innocent people. And if I in any way can extend um, my humanity to them, like my heart bleeds for them. Um, and that is the way that we need to think and not have to justify our sympathy 
um, based on conditions of success or race or Europeanness or whiteness. Yeah, very well said, Niaz. I would, I would completely agree with with everything you you just spoke about, and I do have a bit of hope, perhaps naively, that things will change for the better in future, and we and we as a country and as a Western society do start to view the refugees all in the same light and understand you know, that they're all going through through the same difficulties and deserve that same level of compassion. But yeah. on a on a on a slightly brighter note, or sorry Timmy, did you there's, there's something that you wanted to add? No, I've just been listening to what Niaz has been saying and um yeah I, I, I completely agree. I have found the past couple of weeks difficult and I've kind of pushed stuff to the back of my mind. Um, I don't know if that's the best way to have dealt with it, but whether it's like the, the Nigerian woman, I don't know if you saw her on the BBC who said that if you're black, you should walk. And like the images of black people being, um, at the, had guns turned on them at the border and stuff. And I didn't do, I didn't, I didn't do anything solutions focused. I mean, I've donated in respect of Ukraine, um, but I didn't do anything solutions focused because I just found it too upsetting because I knew in my head that if that was me in Ukraine and I was in that crowd of black people, I'd be having that gun turned on me without even opening my mouth. Just just because just this is a crazy thing about racial discrimination is it's like not even logical. It's just like based on how you look. And that's really difficult to swallow sometimes because you can't change, <laughs> you can't just change how you look, um, nor should you have to. Should you have to, yeah. Um, yeah, so it really, yeah, it really, really upset me. And, and the way that I dealt with it was to watch, I didn't share it either because I think the news outlets who, because again, to try and keep it, I'll, I'll, you know, the point I raise is to try and keep it balanced, which is actually, I have found out about a lot of this discrimination against black people living in Ukraine from traditional media as well. So it, it is showing the other side too. That's not to say that there isn't media bias. Um, but I, I just thank you, Niaz. I think I think everything you just said is spot on. I agree wholeheartedly. And like you were speaking to me as well, you know. Like I think I think um, I don't think any of us can afford to just sit down and, and just take this stuff. We can. We we are all capable of making the world a better place, and of of changing people's hearts and minds. Yeah. And, and, I, and as I say that, it doesn't mean that you have to like, no one should feel the pressure to like proactively speak out necessarily. I haven't actually put anything out. I've shared a few things. Yeah, It's it's an education point, like feel confident enough in yourself to mobilize yourself with, with information, basically, yeah. that isn't media garbage. Um, so then in a conversation where someone's saying the wrong thing, you can be like, mm, actually, that's not right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so in conversations with people, absolutely. I'm just conscious of... Um, there's obviously a place for this online of like people sharing images of people being discriminated against 
of black people being discriminated against but I have to think really carefully before I share this stuff because to the point where I was like making before if there are like the majority of the population only see black people like on television or in the news and then like maybe I to them I'm like one of the few black people they know I don't want them to only see me sharing negative images because that is what you then subconsciously pick up and associate um I have done before like actually if I look at like the content that I've done that has outperformed all like all of my content has been like based on like racial discrimination basically I don't really know what to make of that but it was like my police stop and search the woman who like spat at the security guard in in Birmingham um but I want to I always try and like balance it with like uplifting images of black people and of like you said Nia's solutions as well yeah yeah um I think I think that's really well put though and you, you seem to be like very self-critical and understanding of like how you process this thing and we all have to process it basically and just yeah and think of how we're how we're going to react um with that though I think Shaq you were going to jump into um something more like not light-hearted but something um a different topic yeah i was just gonna say this week it was international women's day so happy international women's day to or belated international women's day to all of our women listeners and we we did speak well we did do a post didn't we Niaz, on international women's day and we yeah. spoke briefly about the the gender pay gap and Timmy I know that's that's an area that you wanted to touch on today yeah so I want to open by saying that um I'm a huge believer of staying within one circle of competence and having done this content creation thing for a few years now um the areas where I feel most qualified to speak are on being a man being a black British person um money you know like the, the the lived experience I've had so um I don't wanna like this is essentially me sharing my view on a topic that I think actually represents like women entirely like this is women's domain but um yeah I just think that the gender pay gap conversation is quite interesting because there was that the, the, I was in a WhatsApp group chat conversation the other day and um, one of the women in there posted a new story about that bot, the gender pay gap bot on Twitter, which uh, when people were, t- uh, companies were tweeting about International um, Women's Day would tweet the company's gender pay gap. And I'm just, I had a look at like the article, had a look at the bot and I noticed that the bot was posting the, just like the broad percentage, like median earnings mean earnings percentage I've actually got it up here so yeah women's median hourly pay 10% lower than men's um women's median hourly pay 9% lower than men so yeah it looks like a lot of like broad averages but my my personal view on the gender pay gap is that's the you know it's part of the story when you look at the the UK context and you look at the gender pay gap broken down by age you actually get a bit more of a nuanced picture of the story. So I brought up my own statistics and 
the overall median pay gap in the most recent data was 15.4%. But the interesting thing is if you is broke, I've got the um, annual survey of hours and earnings broken down by age. For employees that are um, 16 and 17, the gap is 1.1%. For 18 to 21 year olds, it's 1.7%. For 22 to 29 year olds, it's 3.9%. And then it absolutely jumps to 11.8% for 30 to 39 year olds and increases further still to 21.3% for 40 to 49 year olds. And the Institute for Fiscal Studies has done, uh, has published a report saying that what we have in this country isn't so much a gender pay gap as it is a motherhood penalty, which is that you see the sharpest drop off, you see a negligible sort of gap under the age of 30 between men and women and then once women get to this is the age where they have kids maybe go more into part-time work take on caring responsibilities their earnings tank not just in relation to men's but in relation to women who don't have kids so this for me is the conversation that we should be having not just the broad percentage i think i've said this on a previous episode it's like if you were to take bill gates and put him on a street full of regular people. And then you started to say that everyone on that street was a millionaire. Yeah. It would be true, but only on average. Like you'd need to look, check in with every person who lived on that street to be like, oh, right, there's like one billionaire on the street and a bunch of other like regular network people. So um, this for me then moves the conversation towards like, it's not just about like pay, it's about like how much we value caring responsibilities and how we assume that it's the default that the woman should be raising the child and should be um, sacrificing on work hours and that sort of thing. And then we look at like work policies as well. We've talked about um, maternity leave before, but like, you know, should, should shared maternity, paternity leave just be a standard thing so that it isn't uh, just women by default having to sacrifice on their careers and then when it comes to like the way that we advertise jobs and stuff I just think it's crazy that we don't advertise the salaries with jobs that wage transparency within organizations isn't the norm like of course we're going to have gaps if the information isn't accessible to people so I just wanted to put that to you guys and just be like what, like what do you think about the overall gap versus the age breakdowns and that maybe it points towards like parenthood rather than just yeah. broadly gender. Yeah, I think that when you look at the gender pay gap, there's there's a few different factors that you need to look at. So parenthood is definitely one. And another one, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe that the gender pay gap is looking at like the median wage for men and women, regardless of the roles that they're doing. And then because of that, you then are comparing people in very high positions, which on average is more likely to be a man. So if you look at um, if you look at like the CEOs of fortune 500 companies for example the majority of them are men so that in itself is one issue that needs to be addressed right we need to have better equality there and needs to be as likely as a woman to be in one of these senior positions as men but one of i guess 
a big contributing factor to some of these figures with the, the gender pay gap is that men are in some of these higher paid positions. So that's also another consideration. I think I'm not sure if there's a there's another calculation which is more accurate, which is com sort of comparing like for like in terms of jobs, which allows you to get a more accurate picture when it's looking at the the pay differences between men and women for specific roles. And then of course, when you're looking overall, that's when you can see those bigger differences because there's the inequality when it comes to the actual roles themselves. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I'm inclined to agree. And I think it's, as you said to me, I think it's quite helpful to look at something um, uh, in a more magnified way uh, with, with a finer tooth comb um, than just the averages. Because like, I think that's a really good analogy about how Bill Gates walking into a street would on averages make everyone a millionaire. Um, but actually the reality of everyone's individual circumstances are so different. So um, to have like a sweeping average, which I guess on a, on a, on a highlight level is important because it highlights um, that there's still a lot of change that needs to be made. Um, I think we have to look at things a bit more symptomatically and, and see where, where it is that some of those changes um, should be targeted. Um, and we definitely do have like a motherhood tax in the UK and probably many other um, nations as well. Like we've both, we've all mentioned about conversations with female colleagues in the past um, who spoke about it, like when they went to um, have children and came back from maternity leave. Um, and there certainly is, uh, I think also based on some of the reading and research that we did, um, there's also a limiting of options after um, people have had children, whether that's by way of like a, an informal bias um, that because usually when people reach a certain stage or experience level in their careers, um, the opportunities for um, higher incomes kind of compounds as well with managerial positions and senior positions. Um, and based on some of the research that we've done, um, actually, that's where a lot of the inequality is perpetuated as well because um, women aren't considered for as many of those options. Um, part of that might be because there is an expectation of motherhood or whether they have gone on maternity leave and, and been overlooked. Um, but at certain stages of their career, um, when, it, when really people are become or reach that wealth uh, acquisition phase of their career, like real wealth acquisition phase of their career, it seems like women do suffer quite a lot from dimin diminished opportunities. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'd agree, I'd agree. I think, I think we need to focus in on where it is exactly that women are losing out and think about how we can um, make uh, symptomatic adjust adjustments um, that would be really helpful long-term um, to close the gender pay gap uh, in an equitable way. I actually have the stats for from the uh, annual survey of um, hours and earnings, and it's got um, the occupation breakdowns. And just having a cursory glance, for example, like skilled trades occupations, um, is one of has one of the highest pay gaps here. Yes, man. Um, skilled agricultural and related trades quite high. Managers. Uh, corporate managers and directors, another high one, health professionals, science, engineering and technology associate professionals. So, um, yeah, just 
anecdotally like jobs where you'd expect to see a, a higher ratio of men to women in them. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think, um, again, there's so many sort of like industry uh, variables as well. And we always hear about that. We're always so impressed about women in STEM as well. Like when you think about, and particularly women in engineering and those kind of um, industries that have been, um, that just don't have much female representation. Um, uh, and deservedly so, we hail up the women that manage to break through in those industries. But we should be creating more opportunities there because they are um, such uh, valuable contributors to society at large. Yeah. So, yeah, just to follow on from your kind of um, the way you structured your part of the episode, Nia's solutions focused, definitely equal access to opportunities. And, you know, that starts with education in school. So, not funneling people down a particular path. Um, at an early age based on like a test that they happen to do once or like whether they're a boy or a girl having just like advertising jobs with the salary I think should just be mandatory and if not a salary then a banding so that you know in the region of what you expect to earn I think that there should be full wage transparency internally in organizations so you, there should be a place that you can go to to find out how much people of different positions earn um, people probably say, yeah, but if people knew, then they'd be, you know, they'd feel aggrieved or they feel disgruntled. But I would argue that if you're not paying people in a way that doesn't make any logical sense, then you shouldn't really have been doing that in the first place. You should be able to articulate why people are paid X amount in your company. And I also think that we should value like the creation of human life more. Yeah, for sure, man. It's not like just a, casual like side thing you know with no market value like it's literally it's the an activity thing <laughs> like well it's, a, it's an activity which if we stopped for 100 years there'd just be like no people left yeah yeah and yeah. I, I yeah i agree entirely same here i um I especially agree with the salary transparency point. And I think that's something that's very important. And we, we actually had a conversation with our friends the other day and I, I can't remember who started it, but one, one of our friends sort of suggested that we all just sort of let each other know our salaries just to be transparent and give everyone's kind of that awareness of, of how much everyone's earning. Cause I have a group of like 16 of us, I think majority of us dropped it. I think some people are still a little bit, reserved around and and that's completely fair enough it's it's down to them but i know that a lot of people appreciated sort of being able to have that awareness of what what other people are earning and some people said as well it's, it's given them sort of a bit of a kick in terms of going out and perhaps asking for a higher salary and i guess having more value over the work that they're doing and realizing that perhaps they do deserve to be paid more yeah we don't even like we don't even pay people properly in the first place. So like if, if you have it, because those conversations can be really exposing, you know, yeah. you can really get a sense of like, wow, am, am I even valuable as a human being? But you just have to remember that like when people were literally on the front lines, saving people's lives in, in like in the NHS, yeah. dying and stuff, uh, and, and actually not just in the NHS, but like all key workers. So. Um, like people who are like driving our buses and trains and 
people like you know sweeping the roads collecting our dustbins all of that like we clapped for them that we just couldn't there was no monetary amount we could give them so we literally had to bang on pots and pans to show appreciation so you have, you have to remember that the world we live in is one in which people aren't even paid fairly like in the first place agree entirely um yeah i was just head of virtue signaling in that period um but yes yeah, so i think it's about solutions and actions really um and thinking about how we can bring about those changes but yeah as Shaq said i think honest conversations about income and salary and detaching it from self-worth is 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 a, is a healthy start um but yeah we just need to empower people to to be like this shadiness actually only serves um the people, people yeah who are paying, yeah yeah you're in charge exactly um and this like mystique and um taboo around income and money actually doesn't serve everyone else because we could all help each other by being more open um and actually off the back of that post um i had a a friend and a female colleague uh, who approached me and i could tell that she was thinking about how to approach me and she said oh you know like you talk about fairness and salary transparency um would you mind telling me what you earn uh, so i can see that i'm paid fairly as well and i it took it took me back but i was like yeah of course like i need to practice what i preach and we had an honest conversation about it um yeah and see what she does with that information um but it was actually a very interesting and useful com conversation that we both had um this much i'd say um yeah and, and you as an individual should never feel bad if you're being paid more than one of your colleagues because like timmy said there needs to be a justification for that. And equally, if one of your colleagues is being paid more than you and you feel that you deserve to be either closer to them or equal wage to them or more, as long as you have a reason for that, you should be able, you should feel comfortable enough to go up to your boss and say, look, I just found out that someone, your ex is, is earning this much. I feel that the way I contribute to the team, the value I add to this company by doing X, Y, Z, I feel I should be paid that much. And if they're not able to up your salary, then, I think that's probably something that you should be escalating and perhaps you need to take your services elsewhere. Yeah. What I'd also say though, is I've actually worked in like operations kind of HR. If you're working in a company that isn't particularly on, on top of this stuff or is like large or has just like inefficiencies, chances are no one even knows. Yeah. Like you might raise it and they might be like, oh my goodness, like we didn't realize that you were being paid less and you may just get a quick correction. Um, that's like, I've, I've seen that like myself before. It's not like you've been, um, it's not always going to be the case that you've been targeted and like, but your salary has been suppressed. It might've just been an oversight. You, so, sorry. An oversight. Yeah. Yeah. Like you join, you've been there for two years. Someone joins after a year after you, they negotiate their salary up on joining. So they're being paid more than you. And then you just haven't had an uplift yourself. And then if you if you flag that with someone, um, then they're aware and they can do something about it. Yeah. And on that note, I'd like to jump into our least change loop because mine kind of relates to what we, we were just speaking about. Cool. Yeah, so I'll start us off then. But mine is in relation to LinkedIn. And just given that we're speaking about sort of if you need to take your services elsewhere. So 
one of our friends recently got a new job and he gave everyone a bit of advice and said, when you're getting hammered by these messages from recruiters on LinkedIn, rather than just ignore them, like most people do, even if you're not interested, you should always reply and just say, oh, thanks for, for approaching me. Like, appreciate you reaching out, but I'm not looking for a new role at the moment, or this isn't the role I'm look, looking for. Or even if, okay, the salary is not something I'm looking for, just go back with them, let them know you're not interested for whatever reason. And then that will mean that they will still consider you for future opportunities and will perhaps even refine those opportunities that they're bringing to you. Because if you're just flat out ignoring people every time you get messaged, unless you genuinely don't want a new role, then, then that's completely fine. But if you're ignoring people, then it means that you're less likely to get messaged again in the future by either that recruiter or by other recruiters in our network. So if yeah. you think that you may want work in the future, just, just send a, a message. And another one of our friends as well say, it's always good to have like a, be, have a, a good relationship with a recruiter or two, because so they're always going to have you in the back of their mind. Whenever these opportunities come up, they're always going to be putting your name forward. So uh, one to consider for anyone that is potentially thinking of exploring new roles in the future. Yeah, really like that one, Shaq. And just to add to it, um, I just remembered that our friend also said that um, it also has an algorithmic impact because obviously we, we're run by algorithms. Because when you reply to someone who's sort of like just sent you a message or an email on LinkedIn, um, it shows that this, this is someone that is, is responsive. So they're more likely to um, get success rates from sending you messages. Whereas if you constantly ignore them, eventually the, the messages to you will dry up because obviously the algorithm and the analytics are showing that this is someone that just ignores all the, ignores all the messages. So that's a, that's, a, that's a really good one. Cheers, Jack. Um, I, my one again, I'm just going to sort of like reiterate my points in uh, earlier is just for everyone and for all of us just to be conscious um, about um, in ourselves, first and foremost, about challenging any media bias that we see. Um, and just like, if we see something that we're, we're all intelligent, like we're all cognizant beings. And when we see stuff villainizing and demonizing people, um, that we're able to at least like challenge it within ourselves and be like, right, how much of this is propaganda that I'm being fed? how much of it is true because now it's got to the point where the ridiculousness is difficult to disguise whereas we're just seeing outright racism we're just seeing outright discrimination um so we can kind of just be like oh this this was nonsense all along so in ourselves it doesn't mean you're, you're having to sort of like vouch um support or become like an advocate for any kind of cause but just call just call it out within your own heart when you see it and and even if you had fallen for it before um, just be like, oh, that wasn't right. That's actually something that I was fed, which was wrong. Um, and to and to just sort of like make it a bit more like I, I'm exactly the same. So me as uh, as a young Muslim British man, there was a period of my life that I was scared of other Muslim people um, uh, who weren't from here because of how much I'd bought into a narrative that was sold to me. And I know there's people that have had similar experiences um, because of like the garbage that they've been um, made to believe as well. So it doesn't matter that you've, you might find yourself in a position where you're like, wait, something that I thought all along is completely wrong. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Just challenge it in your own heart. Um, yeah. And so I'd, I'd say be, be conscious of um, media bias. I love that. Yes. I love that. I think there can sometimes be 
a pressure, even if it's internally felt, to see something and then you either need to do a social media post or take to the streets in protest or, or like do something. But it does actually just start with you being able to challenge yourself. Yeah. First and foremost. Yeah, for sure. My, um, my loose change isn't really a loose change. I actually just wanted to give a shout out to everyone who has DM'd us, messaged us, left us a voice note, uh, given us feedback on this show we're doing. Like, we can't believe, we've had some proper like discussions in the DMs, some proper feedback. We listen to all of it. Um, we, we, we discuss it amongst ourselves and then we feed it back into the next, um, into the next episode that we do. Like we've, we've heard feedback that you like the current affairs stuff. So we've tried to bring our own stories of, th of stuff that's happening now. Um, you've told us that you like the, you know, our balanced take on things and it's three male voices, but we do our best to try and, um, yeah, like have, have a, broad and sort of diverse discussion we have so much fun doing this show I, I don't think I've ever said this to you Shaq and Niaz but I love working with you I, I love our relationship it's been like two years now um so I don't even know if this is a loose change I just wanted to say thank you for everyone thank you for supporting us and we're gonna keep putting out these episodes and yeah I entirely second that notion as well yeah would echo all of that and, and love working with you too Timmy yeah, you're all right, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that brings this episode to a close. Loads of great discussion. Um, I'll hand over to one of my esteemed brothers to do the, the closing, which I always mess up. Yeah, you've been listening to episode eight of the Loose Change podcast. Thanks, as always. Remember to follow us at Loose Change Pod, at Mr. Money Joe and at Millennial Money UK on Insta. Cheers, guys. Thank you for listening.